Welcome to Replacement Level Morality. My name is Joseph. I'm Andrew. Andrew, what are we talking about today? I would like to talk about the French Revolution. Why? Why the French Revolution? Why a uh, a civil and political reformation that occurred centuries ago in another continent? Why is that the topic of relevance for today? So I have an enduring fascination with year zero movements. Like we're just going to start everything over and do it better this time. Cause there are so many and their record <laughs> is so bad. Yes. But it might work for us. <laughs> oh no. It, real communism hasn't been tried. <laughs> dot gif. You know, it's an old chestnut for sure. There's an old joke about, uh, was the French Revolution a good or a bad thing? And I'm going to look up who said it. Was the answer Fox yes? Was, uh, <laughs> too soon to tell. Too soon to tell. That's a better one. Zhao Enlai. I don't know who this is. but Chinese premier was asked about the impact of the French Revolution. Too soon to too tell. Soon to tell. <laughs> okay. So I'm fascinated by year zero movements because there's something deep in human nature that's what if we did everything the right way instead of the wrong way i think part of that is markets are feel so unnatural to people like we all as hayek pointed out we all live like socialists in our own houses and there's constantly attempts to generalize that as, well, this is just the nation is the fatherland or the motherland, and we're all brothers and sisters. And trying to take familial obligations to each other just to a level that they can't be extended. They they kind of break under the weight at a certain like I don't I can't think the same way about my brother as I do about some guy in Wisconsin. I right. just can't do it. I, I don't have the capacity. Yeah, the the your distance, your dis relevant distance to be feel connected to someone does matter. That can extend obviously to your extended family, it can extend to your your close associates, it can extend even to the people in close physical proximity. Like I I have regard for the safety and well-being of my neighbors. You know, like their their health and well-being is something that certainly matters to me and mine hopefully matters to them to the degree that I would intercede in certain circumstances on their behalf. You know, not going to take a bullet for my next door neighbor, but I certainly would uh, do my best to ensure the security of their property if I saw it was imperiled in some fashion. Exactly. And there's there's a desire to try to extend this. And and moreover, there's just a desire to say, well, things are bad. Trademark. No definition of bad. Um, but we can do better if we just tear down all of the existing institutions and replace them with good institutions. That has a bad track record. It's not just the French Revolution, but that's the biggest one. And uh, it's always dangerous to have a take about the French Revolution because it's so complicated you inevitably end up oversimplifying what happened, but I'm going to do just that. We started with a really bad system, beheaded a truly staggering amount of people, and ended up with a dictatorship. The exact same form of government that we started with. No, not it's the exact same. A little different in, you know, there were different rules, there were different other power structures, but there was... A guy at the top who controlled all of the things. I do think that there is a qualitative difference between an absolutist Bourbon monarchy versus a, a dictatorship by Napoleon that furthers the concepts of civil rights in both France and abroad as in following in Napoleon's like... <laughs> War making wake that is real and and profound. Yet I see your point, which is you, you attempted to escape 
uh, whatever you would call strongman autocracy over one form or another, whether it be divine right or uh, right by grape shot. And you you wound up going from one to the other because in your attempt to burn everything down, you left a giant void in which power uh, abhors and and filled immediately. I mean that that's literally how Napoleon took power, right? Like the the instability of of revolutionary governments finally led Napoleon just to show up with troops and said, "I'm in charge now." And people went along with it because the beheadings had to stop. Everyone wanted after chaos, people crave stability. So every time there's some movement of we're going to reset everything. There is going to be so much chaos that you're just going to lead straight to someone who says, I will put the chaos to an end. The Republican government's even tried that trick, right? Like Robespierre and all of them got were on the receiving end of the treatment they were giving everyone else. And there was a huge, what was it, the Thermodurian reaction? Like a, a somewhat conservative government that came to power to like, okay, that was way too much. Like, <laughs> knock it off. <laughs> and apply some breaks. But they themselves were still far left of the original position, so much so that even a relatively conservative reaction was not sufficient to restore the order necessary to satisfy people's wants. And ultimately, well, what happens? Well, an ambitious enough man sees the opportunity and seizes it and just pushes it over and says, I'm in charge. And everyone is so that your, your new institutions have no purchase with anyone. No one has loyalty to them because they haven't been around for very long and they don't have a good track record uh, that. Yeah, this other guy seems like a good plan. That's that pattern certainly has repeated several times through history. There's this concept from a Scott Alexander article of politics having a conflict theory versus a mistake theory. The mistake theory being things go wrong because it's hard and the world's complicated and conflict theory being things go wrong because the bad people are in charge and all of these various revolutions that led to a worse state that led to instability. Well, you got the bad people out. So it seems like the conflict theory wasn't wasn't right. The bad people are gone now. You probably killed them all. Right. If it's a violent revolution that succeeded at, at, at taking power. Which leaves us with, it's actually just hard to govern. And you gotta have some sympathy for that. And I want to bring it back to the U.S. context with, it's hard to govern because... We are, we are Midwesterners, we and are. we've seen a lot of the landscape that J.D. Vance wrote about up close. A lot of truly forgotten areas where there's just a lot of people who used to work in steel. I grew up in Cleveland, uh, and now there's opioids and not a whole lot else. Yeah. The, I think it's worth emphasizing to any potential non Midwestern audience that we have, which is when we're talking about these hollowed out places within the Midwest, it's not that like these places are just some folks who are temporarily down on their luck because their, their jobs no longer exist. That was the case 20 years ago. What's left there now is the human wreckage of a generation of underemployed, undereducated, government-dependent, drug-addicted people who serve as a sort of lingering underclass uh, that are limping through existence. And not every place is lost to that. You know, there's always life in different communities in particularly cities of scale, like go to Cleveland and a lot of Cleveland seems very normal. Uh, But then there's a whole part of it that isn't. And this is more profound in the smaller places, like uh, going to Toledo, for example. There, I I, I want to emphasize that there are parts that are functional. 
there are good jobs. There's a, in, there's a chip factory coming, but you look at a place like Cleveland and instead of, are there companies there? Of course there are companies, there are jobs. There's a, a city that's not, it's not ruinous. It's not a like post-apocalyptic. It's fine. Everything is fine. Kind of. But there's no, if you look at it geogra- geographically, just what does this city offer that isn't, that is value over replacement for the country as a whole? It's a bunch of office buildings that are there kind of purely by legacy. And anywhere there's office buildings and apartments, people are productive when you put them in groups together. That's why the cities form. But what is it doing better than Chicago? I don't know that I have a good answer. And so with this kind of intimate knowledge in mind, as we observe the whole middle swath of the country that's suffered a a tremendous level of socioeconomic decline over the, the, over our adulthood. You know, what, what, what relevance has this to your French revolution topic? There's a lot of talk about the Bernie Trump voter, which seems like an oxymoron because ideologically they're, pretty far away from each other. But what they shared was a general feeling of populism of the systems rigged. Like you said on a previous week, Trump just came out and said, there's a bunch of cocaine and hookers in there. And then he went back in. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to go back to where the cocaine and hookers are, but you should know that's what's going on in there. That's actually a Dave Chappelle line. Is it really? Yeah. That that, that totally tracks. (laughs) I've consistently called Trump the biggest middle finger available to, and there's a lot of ways in which the, I say coastal elites because it's an appropriate phrase. The people that the people who work at Google or New York times or uh, ESPN or uh the administrative state, the the four big cities, all represented right there. People who ha- have power in those areas and will literally and unironically use the term flyover states to describe the places where they live. That's just a real phenomenon. And I know coastal elites is a played out phrase, but it has a lot of purchase for a reason. It does. I mean, it's true. I mean, I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that um, Americans have never personally seen in their history. I don't think America's ever experienced in their history the kind of true instability that can occur from a total socioeconomic breakdown. Like even in the Civil War, it was a competition between two, a, a previously established and organized state, and then a new government that was itself formed by other, in, you know, states, right? Like, there was a war, it was brutal, it was bad, it wasn't a good time to be alive in the United States for any reason because of the, the costs of fighting a civil war, but that what didn't, it wasn't anarchy, right? It was very organized conflict, Right. There was a gentlemanly spirit that a lot of the people involved knew each other. They had fought in the Spanish-American War. Um, you mean the Mexican-American War? That one. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. Uh, Spanish-American <laughs> War is later. Yep. <laughs> and, and what broke the Civil War was kind of a relatively small taste of, okay, this is, we we've played a relatively gentlemanly game where my army fought your army. And then they move back a little bit and then you won a battle and we move back the other way. And then Sherman said, war is about the population centers. It is about the strategically valuable resources. And in war, one of those resources is 
your country's people that are gathered in cities being productive and paying taxes and supplying the troops. And the population centers came under attack very late in the war in a serious way for the first time. And it ended not long after because it was a pretty small taste of the kind of chaos of what European style land conflict could really bring. You're absolutely right. And that small taste was enough to convince everyone it was a bad idea. I And because it has never existed truly in the American experience at all, they don't know what it means to have like a total breakdown of your social order, like completely obliterated. Because that's what happened. You You have... Century upon century upon century of the state of France as, you know, which shifts from from monarch to monarch and fortune and battle and alliance, whatever France is. There's a core of it that I think everyone understands to be France, but the periphery uh, changes. Does it include the Netherlands? Does it include this? Does it include that? Alshaxe Lorraine, like how Switzerland, Calais, like all of this. Suddenly, you go from France being this sort of somewhat malleable holdings of the French crown mentality, which is itself an institution that defines how it decides to govern itself fully within the powers of the monarch, who is ordained by God, divine right of kings. And then suddenly, you say, we're going to behead that guy? And we're going to say that doesn't count anymore. And France is what now exactly? There's nothing. There's no institutions. There's There's been the crown and what the things the crown have decided to create. And then you've just decided to eliminate that all at once. Now there's nothing. You just have a huge mass of people that lives in this territory. And no one knows who it belongs to. No one knows how to govern it because no one's ever tried this before. Like the Ameri- You look at the Americans be like, well, they did a revolution. Like, no, no. Very different. They decided to make something new in a new place. There wasn't existing American institutions. They were brought over and naturally developed as a consequence of that huge gap between their European uh, origins and the fact that they're kind of on their own in this wilderness, having to make their way in this, this new land. And there's this space as a consequence to find a new revolutionary way of governing yourself because you don't actually have to be connected to what happened before. And it took two tries. Like the, the, the system, the thing that endured after the revolution was the states. Yes. There were states before it. There were states after it. They did most of the governing. We tried some national governance, took two tries. But, you know, that wasn't the thing providing stability in day-to-day life. Correct. Like the the need to create the second uh, governing document for the United States was out of necessity for some of the things they knew they were going to be problems in the future, that they needed to be able to organize themselves commercially and for international purposes. Uh, But, you know, there was an anarchy in this period of a lack of serious American uh, central governance. States were continuing to operate. They just foresaw like this was not a sustainable model. We need to do something where we can make decisions collectively or we're, we're not going to make it. And that that was a much easier process than France is now buck wild. <laughs> it's who's in charge. I don't know. These guys, they say they're in charge. The, I guess a bunch of guys with guns say they're in charge. This isn't how things are supposed to go. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, they went to the tennis court and said that they were in charge now. Uh, So, uh, (laughs) you know. And and then they beheaded everyone who disagreed with them. Yeah, and then suddenly you you see the consequence of a total breakdown. You you see the, the, the personal violence, the terror, the 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 worst parts of people that can very quickly emerge because there's a power vacuum and everyone's going to rush to fill it. And yeah, the Americans don't know what that's like. There no. was, there's never been a serious war fought on our shores. We didn't have, we've never had to deal with, with 
mass starvation. We've never had to deal with bombed out cities. You know, we've never had to deal with people being beheaded. We never had to deal with a complete instability in government on a, on a local or a state or federal level. In, the, in our worst of times, things have remained relatively organized in this country. I recently read a truly harrowing account of a besieged city in Kosovo and a man who survived it with uh, guns are important. Friends are more important, but truly like Dunbar's number survival units. Uh, What, what happens in total breakdown and, you know, you're bartering cigarettes with, people and hoping that they don't just kill you and take them. Um, It's not really something that you imagine. I don't, I don't mean to imply that like the Bernie Trump voters were aiming for a situation like that. Obviously there's not, but you can, there's a sense of LARPing about it that exists because there's not a good sense of, what it would actually be like. I don't necessarily think the Bernie Trump voter, you know, the Bernie, the the Bernie Trump voter doesn't want what we're talking about. They just know that they're dissatisfied with the current state of affairs and they're unsure as to what else to say. Right. They, they, they don't want this anymore and they've lost faith in its ability to provide, you know, a good outcome. And so they say, things that suggest they want to burn it down and they haven't thought about it beyond that. And if you introduce to them, like the concept of like, hey, do, do you want to taste what the consequences of, of burn it all down looks like? Do you want, would you like to be um, dropped into the post world war one anarchy of Eastern Europe as your would be new state is fought over between the Soviet Union and Poland and, you know, in a, in a war, no one has the capacity to stop or solve, you know, like, do you want that? You know, do you, do you, do you want people to be beheaded? Like, do you want that kind of uncertainty? Do you, do you not want your technology to work? Do you not want your currency to be respected? Do you, you, you don't, you don't want that. What you want is a better – you want the system to be responsive to your needs. That's what you actually want. But you just don't think that could happen. I think in a lot of cases, what they want is an apology. Like the Everyone knows that Washington has screwed up in colossal ways, but there haven't been – there haven't been many apologies made. There wasn't an apology for – how badly they handled COVID. There wasn't an apology for Iraq. There wasn't an apology for, you know, of some of these things, let alone an apology. There was an apology for the IRS scandal officially issued. They fired a random guy in Cincinnati. That's, that's, I guess, better than literal nothing, but it's not great. Doesn't, it doesn't have anything to do with, my way of life doesn't exist anymore and there's no job training or support to move. I'm in favor of creative destruction from an economic, like the economy has to be dynamic, but you can't just ignore the losers. Let's circles back to what you said about how coastal elites continues to be a relevant thing to bring up because the reason why these things can't be acknowledged or apologized for is that the people who have to do the acknowledging and the apologizing, see no reason why they should have to do so. I see no reason why they have to do so because they're disconnected from the people they rule or have contempt for them. We've, we've already discussed that the whole concept of noblesse oblige and how it is completely ashes uh, in, in the current year, but it's all linked to that is the, the desire to burn things down comes from any ruling class that no longer responds to your needs and their failure to acknowledge that because they don't feel that they have to makes the, the ruled even angrier about that. 
And how many times does that cycle have to repeat before you're a bunch of starving farmers outside of Versailles and you decided Marie Antoinette's had their time? You know, like, this is over now. You clearly can't do this. We're so far away from that that I'm not really concerned. But, you know, we've... The, all the talk about the second civil war just means like oh, an escalation to seventies level political violence, but with Twitter. So it's all in all of our faces faster. If I hear one more take about a goddamn civil war in this country, I will eat a hat. It's, it's the, it's, it's, you want to talk about cold takes, man. Like stop it. Stop it right now. You know, like civil wars are not fought over tiny petty political beefs. They're not. Okay. Then th- because that's people what, die. Yeah, people die. Are you are you at the point where lives are being threatened as a consequence of this in, incompetence? Like lots of lives, mass lives. Um, then if you're not, then you're not at a point where civil wars happening. I was like, do people have food? Sure do. And they have electricity? Definitely. In fact, did they have all the wonders of modern convenience, if not more than they did a year ago? Yep. I think it's a little bit more expensive. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That, that, if that's as bad as it is, there's not going to be a civil war, right? Civil war is what occurs when the fundamental order no longer functions and death or causing death no longer feels like it's off the table. And you got a lot of LARPers who will you know, try to, to make that case, but it never holds up to scrutiny. And a lot of people who are conflict theorists who think if we could just deal with the bad people, then our year zero moment would go well. Uh, and I think one of the missions of this podcast <laughs> is to bring some historical light to there have been a lot of year zero move- moments and none of them go well as well as uh, as Francis Fukuyama says. Some form of liberal democratic capitalism. <laughs> uh, I mean, ask the Mensheviks how that went for them. You know, just to, to move the example to another year zero movement, right? The the whole the whole Russian Revolution. Um, was so similar to what happened in that you had an autocratic regime that was faltering, incompetent, couldn't, couldn't govern successfully anymore, lost the respect of the people that they were governing. And eventually they just turned on them and killed them and decided we're going to just invent our own new institutions and come up with our own new way of governing ourselves. And it winds up a horrific mess that results in the deaths of countless people that uh, occurred from everything from incompetence to malfeasance to monstrosity. And no one, no one's immune to what happens. Like, I, I guess I'm not trying to convince people like there's no, there should be no new way of looking at, the world or trying to govern yourselves or don't improve because you, you can go down these roads. Yeah, you don't demand accountability. I'm not trying to suggest that, but institutions, particularly successful ones need to be cherished and preserved and reinforced and saved and not destroyed. Like that's the problem. It's, it's not the like, yeah, I, I understand you want accountability. You want better elites. You want things to work. And you're frustrated they don't, and you want to take action. Like, all of that makes sense. But you have to think about, okay, well, would I prefer to do that and then allow incompetent strongmen to step into the void that will ultimately occur? Like, someone's going to be that rapper that shows up to the Chaz Chop with a bunch of AK-47s and decide that they're in charge of security there now when you try to create your new liberal commune, okay? Like, that, that that's going to happen immediately every time (laughs) would you prefer instead institutions that provide stability and justice and uh 
a continuity for everyone to be able to agree to organize around. I think you would. So let's focus on saving the things we have and preserving them rather than trying to destroy them. I have a little faith in how much American politics has changed. Like the gold versus silver money used to be the most important issue. I know very little about that. What can you tell me about that? Uh, so the cross of gold speech, uh, there's actually a commonality in that the Midwest Midwestern farmers had more political power than cultural power. And, um, so the U.S. is on a gold standard. The farmers took out debt. The economy was growing with a fixed money supply, so there was deflation. Money was getting more valuable, and that made their debts harder to pay back because they had to pay back stronger dollars. So there was a movement to say, all right, well, we have this called a dollar. It's not gold, so we can print silver-backed dollars and just print a bunch more dollars and stop the deflation. Uh, and that's that's the you shall not crucify America on a cross of gold because we could mint silver instead. That was that was Williams Jennings Bryan's whole deal was minting silver money instead. It seems like it's that's so quaint sounding. You have I've heard about like gold standard, this cross of gold speech, but it's something that I've just never really like. I never really understood the context of what this was about. And it was just about, we want to inflate the currency so that farmers can pay their debts back easier. And we need to come up with an explanation for why we can. And we'll just make dollars that are backed by a different form of precious metal that's cheaper and more available. And this will give us the excuse to just do what we actually want to do, which is just print more dollars because we know we can just do that anytime. We just need to justify it within the system because we haven't yet, we don't have the language yet to describe what we're trying to do, but the intention is there. Like we know what end result we want to get to. That's very fun. That's interesting. It's very right, interesting. We, we know there's a problem. We don't have the language to describe the money supply is too tight, but we knew something was broken. Yeah. Um, and and they knew still, what it was too, that what the money supply was too tight. They just didn't know how to explain it. Right. But it was also, there's the similarity of like, it's a regional conflict where the bankers in New York liked that they got repaid with stronger dollars and the, the farmers who weren't as well represented in formal channels because they didn't have like the same connections, but they did have more representation in the electoral college. Like that balance of power is a very old story. Yeah. And has worked for each side of the political debate at different times too. Like this is an equal opportunity weapon that can be wielded opportunistically by whomever can understand the process the best and see where the incentives lie. Like so much of the disappointment in the GOP result in 2022 midterms was this incredibly favorable sort of circumstance they were handed with dissatisfaction with the current regime and say, okay, well, all we've got to do is press this home and we've got it we've got it done we've got it figured out and then they end up losing on the margins in tons of places because they didn't understand the political nuances of the particular districts that they were moving into and how the kind of voter that they needed to sort of switch their allegiance was unable to do so because of Donald Trump and his odious activities right it's like suddenly uh, everything the, the, the system the Democrats hated saved them from a far worse fate because it was, in fact, the Republicans in that in that circumstance who weren't manipulating it correctly. Obama did the same thing in, in 08 and in 12. He he understood how to win within the Electoral College. He knew what he had to do in order to succeed and then did so. And and I see all the time, just kind of bring it to like an institution in the United States that 
is constantly under threat by the political left, and that being the sort of the Republican form of government expressed through the indirect election of the president of the United States via electoral college. This is this is a weapon and and a tool that you can use too. <laughs> you, it's not it's not solely in service to the Republican Party. Well, it's in service of whoever's voters are more geographically distributed, which is kind of Republicans for the foreseeable future. I wouldn't even necessarily say that, though. Barack Obama won a decade ago. And he won by appealing to voters in places where previously Democratic candidates had struggled through a populist economic message that was certainly expanded upon more later by Bernie and even Trump. And he did so because he understood that there was a dissatisfaction with the status quo within otherwise small C conservative America in regards to some of the things we've talked about on the show, like healthcare. So yes, Republican voters are more geographically distributed, but that doesn't mean that, Oh, a, a clever and farsighted democratic candidate can't use that to their own advantage. If they find the right way to appeal to that geographically distributed voter or use their distribution so that they can move a marginal amount of people in a large amount of places and negate the advantage, which is really what happened in 2022. Yeah. And, and in a lot of ways, 2022 was a bunch of people who, you know, we said, just be normal. How about don't destroy the institutions? Yeah. The classic, how are things going for the country? 20%. 20%. How are things going for you personally? 80%. As long as that's the case, there's no will for a civil war. You just, <laughs> people just want things to work. They want adults who right. aren't going to burn anything down because things are okay. And it's going to be, it's going to be their houses that get burned down. If there's crime, they want those people to be arrested. If you know, there's, there's injury. They want that injury to be healed. You know, if there's a pothole, they want it to be filled. You know, like the, the, they, pe- I mean, people are pretty simple when it comes to their desires. They don't want much except stability. The, the failure of the Democratic Party to deliver on that stability should have been their death knell in national politics last year. And it was not precisely because the GOP presented such an unfathomably disgusting case for people who just wanted to watch the whole place burn down and were promising to do that. And people weren't interested because it's like, that's more instability. You're promising me more of the thing I hate, not less. You're not like a sober uh, managerial type who has a plan for making my life better. You're a bomb thrower who wants to get into power so you can make more instability happen. And I don't want that. Lauren Boebert's district is very red. It is 20 points red. She won by like 300 votes. Yep. There's a lot of people in that district who are like, just no, none of this. And I like how the very first thing she did after winning was just like immediately going back to throwing bombs, learn nothing from the experience, right? Like she's going to lose. I mean, she's, she's setting herself up that in two years, she's going to finally lose that district. Like, well, she's, She's sincerely nuts. Like she's not playing, right? Like that's my read. It's she's she's bona fide nuts. She can't change because the the scorpion's gonna sting as it crosses the river. <laughs> that's her nature. Yeah, right now as we record this, for Andrew and I have been enjoying Steve, uh, not Steve Scalise, Steve Scalise might end up speaker. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, we've been watching the. Uh, the the pet the passion of of McCarthy and his <laughs> attempts to become Speaker of the House and uh, old Kevin has had a had a rough first day you know he had a bunch of ballots and 
all the the House Freedom Caucus people voting against him and had a big blow up at his conference when they were given unreasonable demands and all that. And I I'm firmly of the belief that eventually they will come to heal, but it has been uh, a day for everyone's least favorite right wing main characters to 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 roll up into the public uh, 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 spotlight and have their moment. Like everyone from Lauren Bobert and Matt Gates to like, I think Paul Goser got caught on camera, like chit chatting with AOC, you know, like I, you know, I don't know what they were talking about. Maybe they were talking about dentistry. <laughs> no idea. Right. Like, but uh, all the, all the drama and intrigue has been fascinating. I was listening to, the voting process of person's name, who they voted for three iterations, at least as I'm, as I'm uh, doing my work, I'm like, man, this is the worst podcast of all time. So <laughs> I, I, uh, I saw that um, uh, the official comment of Donald Trump uh, on the matter was, we'll see what happens. <laughs> what well, you then is Donald Trump, the worst political ally of all time. Yeah. Department of Justice had the first one. He's like the first senator to endorse him. And now he's like destroyed. Oh, yeah. Uh, Sessions. Yeah. Jeff Sessions. He's like so proud of being the first guy to endorse Trump. And then Trump just like destroyed him in 2020. Went out of his way to destroy his political career. I mean, he only personally went out of his way to destroy his political career in 2017. Like... Jeff Sessions' political uh, entire political career was destroyed because he decided to recuse himself from an investigation on on correct ethical grounds. I'm like, well, I you know I could be subject to this as a consequence of what I've read so far. Uh, I don't I didn't do anything wrong. I know I didn't do anything wrong, but you know I could ask to be a witness to something. You know because I was involved in the campaign. I was there. So I should probably not be involved in the investigation and I'll, I'll make sure that there's a special prosecutor that can see this to its fruition at all. You know, like that, that was just like the correct legal ethical lawyer thing to do, right? Like, Oh, I might, I might get called for something here. I, I should be involved. That was it. His political career was over because as far as Trump was concerned, that man was supposed to be his like personal, like, uh, mob attorney, I guess, or something consigliere, you know, just like making the FBI arrest his enemies. That's how he foresaw it, right? That's how he thought the system worked. And so, like, the first thing that his, like, made a political guy, the very first guy to endorse him, the dude that's been in his corner from day one, that's like, your job is to do this. And he just thought, he, because he had this different worldview of how the fucking world worked, that that's, he didn't even understand that's not how it worked. Well, the same thing happened with the Supreme Court, where he's like, I appointed them, now they owe me their votes. It's like, the the law is not business. Yeah, yeah, it's not, it's not, it's not uh, the mob, either. (laughs) (laughs) You you can't get Johnny Two Guns to go whack the dude because he doesn't vote the way you want to vote. Like, that's, this isn't the fucking untouchables, bro. Like, what, what are you doing? And... Brett yeah, Kavanaugh's Sessions, a made man now. Sessions was persona non grata from that point forward, and he like limped through being attorney general for two years, you know. And then they get you get they get Barr in there, and like Barr sells himself as somebody who really understands what Trump wants, but it's still couched in institutionalism. He's far more conservative. He's far more like pro power of the president. I mean, imagine. What a toxic waste dump Trump really is that Bill Barr resigned in protest. Because that's what he ultimately did. He's like, you know what? You're too much. You're too far. You want to push the power of the presidency way too far from my beliefs. <laughs> so I'm going to just have to go because I'm not going to do what you ask me to do. Well, that's ultimately like. It's hard to know what's true sometimes, but that was like the most evidence I ever needed for the 2020 election was clean was not only like as as far as willing as Barr was to humor Trump. 
he couldn't even like find some small voter fraud ring to like run out the clock. It was a couple weeks. He just had to be like, yeah, I'm running this down. Once I get them, we're going to be fine. He like couldn't even find that. He right. Just, or he couldn't like, even. I, I got nothing. I got nothing. Yeah. Well, he. <laughs> I think it did have to do partially with that Trump wasn't demanding like he was he wasn't demanding action. He was demanding very specific action. You know, like I want to remain president of the United States. We have to find a way to justify this. What are my options? It would have been like, so easy to just like to run out that clock. I don't think it was. I think that's the problem we ran into was like the things he was asking to be done. We wasn't asking. I mean, it's very important to point out to this day. No one has any evidence that Donald Trump ever asked anyone to do anything illegal. But he was making demands for outcomes that were not possible to accomplish legally, right? And he said, "I this I believe I was cheated. I believe that these were fake, or that there's not the right votes, or this has to be a problem. I need uh, you to get to the bottom of this so that I and we need a legal path for me to remain president of the United States." And he's like, none of these things are real. None of this stuff exists. And I'm not going to do what you're asking me to do because it's not possible to accomplish. Like there just wasn't a way to like get hit to run out the clock the way you're, you're, you're saying, because the, the ask was just like, the answer is no. And if the answer is just a flat, no, which it was, then he's just, you know, he's like, I gotta go. I can't, I can't, I guess he could have just made him fire him. I guess that was actually probably, and he probably wouldn't have done it. You know, I thought he was like, I thought he had his replacement lined up in those last couple of days for an acting attorney general. He, he had like a plan like that yeah. you got from Mike Lindell or something, but it it never got implemented. That would like, require work. Why? Well, at that point, no one was going to do what he asked. Right. Yeah. Like, is I think that happened. Maybe no, it's staff's post- running out the clock. Yeah. Like, wasn't that like post January 6th where that happened? Yeah, it's like. This is like the 15th. Yeah, where he's like, do this, do this, do this. And like at that point, because January 6th happened, everyone was like, no one is going to act on your orders. Like, I'm not saying there's been a coup, but there kind of has been. And everyone's (laughs) just waiting politely for you to leave. One last chance just to get on your fucking plane and get out of here. But no one's doing what you're asking them to do anymore. We all know what just happened. We all watched it. It was a you, real massive shit show and you're responsible. You want you to know? sign an executive order and try to force the issue. I guess we'll go get Congress to actually impeach you this time. Yeah. Or like, <laughs> like or mean, you can wait for three days. Those are your options. Like post January 6th, it is important to remember how sensitive the whole situation was where it really like if he even pushed another millimeter forward on what he wanted, it might've just gotten like a snap 26th Amendment, you know, movement to eliminate him from being president. I'm curious. Conversation happened, you know. I'm curious what the 26th Amendment conversations were like. Like, were there holdouts in the cabinet? Who? I don't think there's so much holdouts as people who are willing to act immediately and people who said we have to be willing to act if there appears to be no choice. And at the moment we do have the choice to let him leave. Mm-hmm. And that's probably better. And that's just quieter. Yeah. And I imagine Pence was probably the person who said that, right? Like I can see yeah. him even saying it to say, I know what everyone wants here. I want it too. The man is a monster. <laughs> like Clearly tried to get me, just tried to get me killed. Right? Like, no one's a fan here. Nobody wants this. Uh, but what's better for the country if we institute a con- potential constitutional crisis or we just allow the man to leave and we allow the successor to succeed him and we just move we move forward with whatever processes we wish to move forward with within the system? How is and it a constitutional crisis? Like that's a that's a prescribed for the cabinet and the vice president votes. That's what the Constitution says has to happen. There's not a, but the the thing is, the 26th Amendment is not designed for that circumstance. It's designed for like Woodrow Wilson, right? Like man cannot function. 
He is no longer capable of executing the office of the president, even if he still exists in his corporal form. And therefore, we vote to declare that he is incapacitated so that we can move a succession plan forward or at least have someone be acting clearly as president who has all their faculties uh, that can take on the duties while, you know, the, the, the current president is in the convalescence. That's actually what it was designed for. It's not designed to eliminate someone who is acting in a treasonous fashion. It can be, but the problem is like they laid out like, if they invoke the 26th Amendment and said he's incompetent to remain president, all he has to do is immediately tell the House, I'm actually competent. And then there's like a contested process. By the time all that stuff happens, it's over anyway. And you probably, you, and there's not really clear what happens to the powers of the presidency while the contest is happening. I think like Trump basically still remains president and has all of its powers is my understanding of the circumstance. So it's not a clean disposal of someone in the circumstance that they really had. And so it's like, well, why don't we just, if we got to, we got to force it. We got to make that hat work. Guess we'll do it. But it seems real messy. So let's, let's avoid it. Law school question. Is that a good thing? <laughs> I, I take, take Trump out of it. Like structurally. Yeah. Is it a whole cabinet agrees he's got to go? Is is that enough? To just you don't even need a reason. You don't need to say he's incompetent. Well, it's just is is that a high enough threshold where it's not just going to happen because the VP wants to be president and uh, can't wait for Biden to explain. I mean, wait. So if the v- just <laughs> the VP wants to be president. I think, yeah, I mean, if if we're being honest here, I don't think there's a circumstance where I wouldn't say if the entire cabinet and vice president of a given president says in a unified voice via the 26th Amendment, this man is not capable of being president and must be removed from, from power and from office through this mechanism, uh, I would say that's good enough. That's like, these are, you're only in that position if you are somebody who is inclined to respect the power of that specific person. And you're invested in the party they're from. Yeah. And you're invested in the party they're from. You're invested in the political decisions that have been made. You're, you're vested in the, the ideology at work. And if even that group of people says, fuck them, <laughs> can't do it. Can't do it. Time to move on. Uh, then yeah, I would say that that's good enough. Okay. I agree. Just thought it was interesting. You know, it's always interesting. Our conversations, Andrew. That's, that's the idea that you, you talked me into doing this because we kept having these like thoughtful, deep conversations. And we're like, maybe some people on the internet would like to listen to them too. Well, people on the internet, we hope you enjoyed listening to this one and we'll see you next week. Bye.